Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, it's um, it's graduation season, spring season. Uh, is your phone not silenced? No, I apologize for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish you could keep this time sacred between the two of us. Please silence your devices. Eighth Avenue outside my window won't let that happen. <laughs> There's almost well, guaranteed to be an ambulance or motorcycle. That's very true. Anyway, what's going on? What are we What are we doing this week? This week we are talking to Pete Davis. He's the author of a new book coming out May fourth, titled "Dedicated: The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing." Um, and you know, this is loosely tied to graduation season. This is a time when a lot of people are are making decisions. Um, and Pete has a countercultural. Um, message for for all you young folk. <laughs> that's right. And, and for all of us, really. But I think this really picks up on a lot of some advice that's given to graduates around this time, which is basically keep your options open. And Pete is saying the exact opposite, which is, you know what? Commit to something, throw yourself into it. Um, stop browsing for different options. Stop swiping. Get into the meat of it, which is obviously like a good message for graduates. Um, but really, I think it's a good message for a lot of people in our generation at various points in our lives. Yeah, no, I mean, us millennials are no, we know we're kind of exceptions to this, but known for bouncing around from job to job, relationship to relationship, um, Netflix show to Netflix show, <laughs> podcast to podcast. Pete is not a complete downer on that. Like he says, there is a time and place for some exploration in your lives, but he just wanted to plant the seed um, that, you know, true happiness does not come from from browsing, but from committing to something and seeing it grow over your lifetime. Which is a great segue into what we are drinking this week. Um, And so as far as what's on tap, all this talk about commitment had reminded me about a commitment that I had made with um, some family members of mine to do an advent wine calendar which I made, we made it really far. However, there were some days that we had to take off just for our own health because Advent's a long time and a new mini bottle of wine every day can get daunting. But I'm going back and finishing off some of this commitment that we made to do that. So I'm having some Advent wine in this Easter season from my Advent calendar. Pete would be so proud of your dedication. <laughs> okay. Yep. Cheers to uh, to to dedication. Oh man, love the sound of that twist off wine. <laughs> All right, now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week, so you don't have to. Um, our first story comes from India. Uh, it's, a, it's a story American media has been following for a while, but we haven't talked about on this show yet. 
On Monday, April 26, Father Stan Swamy, an Indian Jesuit priest and activist, celebrated his 84th birthday behind bars. Uh, Father Stan was arrested over six months ago for allegedly inciting violence and conspiring to overthrow the Indian government. Um, so this is not how he wanted to to spend his birthday, I'm sure. Uh, but he's been in that jail in Mumbai since October. Yes. And Father Stan has Parkinson's disease, among other ailments, and he's lost his hearing since he's been in jail, which is overcrowded um, with other Indians who have been languishing for months or even years as they're awaiting trial. The legal teams requested bail on humanitarian grounds, and that's been repeatedly rejected. And this is also coming at a time when India, as I'm sure if you've been following the news, is being overrun with a new super deadly wave of the coronavirus. Right. And Father Stan's defenders, who include the Superior General of the Jesuits, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and religious leaders around the world, um, say that he is innocent and then have called for his release. And Jesuits who know Father Stan have you know, said these charges are outrageous and that he's a man of peace um, and far from being an anti-nationalist as as the government is claiming he's been fighting for the rights guaranteed by the Indian Constitution for marginalized people. Yeah, he has lived and worked with indigenous people for decades, and he's really, you know, stood with them as they as they work to secure rights to their their land, fair wages and justice. And so, you know, we're praying for we're watching this story at American Media and we are praying that Father Stan uh, receives what he's sought to ensure for so many others, which is a fair trial. Correct. And if you want to learn more about Father Stan's story, can head over to America Media's YouTube channel, where our colleague Ricardo De Silva has an interview with um, two two people in India who uh, know Father Stan and have been following this case closely. What's our next story, Zach? So the Associated Press reported this week that the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops is preparing to vote on whether to move forward with a campaign to put stronger pressure on President Joe Biden to not take communion over his views on abortion. Right. So the USCCB's uh, Committee on Doctrine is preparing a document that, if approved at this meeting, would make clear the bishop's view that Biden and other Catholic public figures with similar viewpoints on abortion should not present themselves for communion. Now, existing policy is that it's up to the local bishop on whether or not to deny Biden or anybody um, public officials like this communion. Um, and the two places where President Biden worships regularly, uh, uh, Wilmington, Delaware and Washington, D.C., both are home to bishops who have said that they are not going to and would not deny uh, President Biden communion. Um, he's our country's second Catholic president. but And the first one since Roe v. Wade was made abortion the law of the land, which is kind of like what this is often tied to. Right. And so it's, it's sort of unique in that case. But this still an issue that has come up before in the U.S. Catholic public political life. Right. So the Vatican has not actually uh, ruled on this issue in any official teaching document. But back when Pope Benedict was Cardinal Ratzinger and the head of the Vatican's doctrine office, he wrote a confidential letter to the U.S. bishops when they asked him how to handle the case of John Kerry. John Kerry was a Catholic who was um, a Democrat and running for president. And in that letter, Cardinal Ratzinger recommended denying politicians who demonstrate and quote, persistent, obstinate persistence in manifest grave sin, including the sin of consistently campaigning, campaigning for permissive abortion laws. But in the end, the bishops ignored Cardinal Ratzinger's advice. Right. So and it seems even if the, you know, the current document that's going to be considered by the bishops in the U.S. is is passed, um, it seems 
unlikely that that would change in any practical way. Um, because as you said, the, you know, the Bishop or the Cardinal in Washington and the Bishop in Delaware have already said that they're happy to give him communion. Right. And I, I, I want to address this because I know a lot of people have really strong reactions, um, from a multitude of sides when they hear news like this. Um, and I think we're talking about two things. One is Joe Biden's soul, and the other is the rest of our souls, right? And I won't speak for Joe Biden's soul and whether he is fit to receive communion or not. I, I think that is rightly between him and his pastor and uh, the local bishop. It, but I, I want to address the second one, which is that there is a great concern that you know, giving President Biden is going to cause a a scandal or confuse people about what Catholic teaching is, um, particularly on abortion. And I'm just not sure that's the case. I think that confusion is a, maybe a little bit overstated. Um, I, I do think there is maybe more of a risk that there's going to be a scandal because people perceive the Eucharist is being brought into a culture war like this, right? And I think that's become evident based on the reaction to this letter, um, which I, I don't know. I hope that it that reaction at least makes its way um, into the discernment of the bishops when they're voting on this. Yeah, I hear that. I also understand partly where the bishops are coming from. Like, I understand why they feel like they need to say something. And I, I share in their dismay that, you know, our country's second Catholic president does not um, advocate for a consistent life ethic. Um and because I not only do I think it's true and in terms of theology and and uh, and our faith, but that it translates into humane public policy that would ultimately put forward what a lot of Democrats say they want, which is to help um, vulnerable women. Um, but at the same time, I'm not sure if public declarations are th like this are going to, um, you know, one, stop Biden from presenting for communion and to change his, uh, at least his public views about abortion. That's right. I think they're the public nature of this, this campaign is really what's at stake because I can see, I definitely could see like a private, if there's a one-on-one -on -one pastoral conversation happening about this. Um, but I, because it's so public, I don't know that the public reaction to it ha is going to be, I don't know, fully appreciated, uh, when they vote on this in their, at their June meeting. Um, I don't know. It also is a weird coincidence where like as politics are getting more boring, right? Like I think everyone has seen that Joe Biden has turned down the temperature in terms of, you know, we're all paying attention to the office of the presidency less. Like we've seen that um, in different analytics that are coming through that at this time, the the U.S. Catholic Church is trying to increase the tension up to a level that I don't think people really have an appetite for. Well, it's also the case that this isn't the first time <laughs> this issue has come up in Biden's first 100 days. In fact, on the day of his inauguration, the uh, head of the U.S. Bishops Conference put out a public letter um, to Biden, you know, uh, pointing out the areas where that maybe there could be some cooperation, but also putting in pretty strong terms um, their their um, dismay about his positions on abortion. So, you know, this has been one of the main issues. I mean, not the only. They've also you know, praised his policies on migration and other things. But I think we are going to be talking about this a lot over the next four years.
Joining us from Falls Church, Virginia is Pete Davis. Pete is the author of the new book, Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. Welcome to Jesuitical, Pete. So glad to be on. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for being here. We're really excited to talk about this. I think this is like a really nice graduation season book for a lot of people. I I know this is based on um, a commencement address that you gave. So w- I think this is going to hit home with a lot of people. And and don't you feel a bit that all of us, even those of us not graduating, are kind of in a graduation season out of COVID? <laughs> oh my uh, God, that's such a good point. As the world, totally. trans- you know, I think I've caught everyone in a very reflective mood on the meaning of life or what the heck am mm-hmm. I doing now that this year is over? <laughs> mm-hmm. I know. And they're going to be like, we're going to have plans again and you're going to have to decide whether you're going to, you know, keep your options open or commit to going to to the opening party. From, uh, others <laughs> have told friends. me that it's it's the worst time for this book to be coming out because now is the time we all want to browse because we've been stuck inside. <laughs> and now you're being the uh, the the boring person at the party, right, as we're about to have the summer of joy, uh-huh. um, who says now, OK, now that you're free from your homes and yeah. quarantine, go commit to yeah. Get a job and get married. (laughs) Uh, Can you first define what you mean by infinite browsing mode? Yeah, so I started the speech that inspired the book, and I actually start this book with this rather common experience that a lot of people have, which is it's late at night and you are browsing Netflix looking for something to watch and you scroll through different titles, you read a few reviews, you go watch a trailer to see what you want to watch, but you just can't commit to any given particular movie. My wife hates that I do this, by the way. I am the worst uh, offender of this exact thing. You are not alone. I've literally written a book on the spirit of not doing this, and I still did it this week (laughs) while deciding what to watch on the literal infinite browsing mode. I hope I do a little bit better on what it is a metaphor of. But, you know, you wait, you find yourself 30 minutes later, Zach, and uh, you're just like, oh, I might as well just go to sleep now. And you've spent your whole life on the browsing screen. And that's the idea of infinite browsing mode. And kind of the book is a question of not, you know, just how to solve your Netflix browsing dilemma, but in some ways, we sometimes approach life with this browsing spirit where we go spending our time in the hallway of life trying to decide what we what place we want to commit to, what person we want to commit to, what community, what cause, what institution, what idea. Um, and my challenge with this book is to say, don't fall asleep before you choose. Mm-hmm. So Pete, how did you get interested in this this topic of of, of commitment? Was there something in your own life where you felt like, you were you were sick of browsing and you wanted to to spread this message. Yeah, the book, you know, the speech that inspired the book, um, that this idea basically started with this mystery. It was a disconnect. I had been told as I was going through kind of college and thinking about careers, and anytime you went into one of these meetings with someone who came in to talk to a bunch of young people about how to think about the future, whether it was in school or somewhere else, I was always told by these elders keep your options open. That was the number one like moral message of my education, you know, my formal education and schooling. Um, Keep your options open. Keep your options open. Take the job that will preserve options for the future. Take the course that will preserve options for the future. Move to the place that will preserve options for the future. And yet, this is the mystery. When I thought about the people that were earning respect, when I thought about the elders and heroes that I looked up to, you know, my dad worked for 
decades on indigenous uh, community empowerment. When I thought about my friends who everyone was like, wow, they're really going for it. They're going to become a, you know, Brazilian jujitsu instructor and they're going to go all in on it. They were the people that everyone was like, wow, I want to be more like them. I don't want to like make my specific decision now because I'm really scared, but somehow I want to end up there. Um, that needs an intervention in the conversation if we're telling all the young people to keep your options open, but all the heroes are not um, those who make commitments to particular things. On a, the, my day job, I work in civics and politics, like trying to help advance you know, what I see as justice causes or build a civic revival of people being more engaged in community. And when I kind of had this opportunity to give a speech on you know, one message, you get like five minutes to give one message to a lot of people at a big moment in your life, you know, it really makes you think like, what is the one Archimedean lever that like, if we were able to turn that a bit, more good stuff will happen. And when I reflected on it, you know, I could talk about this, that, or the other present problem. I could talk about, you know, this, that, or the other justice fight or wall that different activists are running into. But it hit me that like the number one thing I think preventing us from, you know, repairing the breach or healing the divide or all the different things we care, advancing the cause on all these different causes is that there are simply just not enough people committed to working on them. We don't have enough people doing one or two hours per week. My whole theory of like the number one thing we could do is increase the amount of people that are doing anything at all. Then I started thinking about what's the thing stopping people from diving in, and I think it was this commitment thing. So that all kind of flowed together into a river of becoming uh, uh, this this idea. Well, I feel like there are uh, a number of places to go with this, and you do in the book between you know from careers to relationships. Where do you think this stems from primarily? Is this is this a modern problem? Um, is is it unique to our generation? Yeah, you know, I I talk about it in the book at the like personal, cultural, and like political, institutional level, like societal level. Mm-hmm. Um, on the personal level, you know, the simple way to talk about it is it's a bunch of fears that you experience at a personal level, and I identify three of them. Two, you probably are have heard of before, and the other, I kind of discovered in my talking to people about this experience. So, one is the fear of regret. You know, you have a fear that if you commit to something, uh, you will wake up 20 years later and feel the phantom limb of what you could have been. You know, you end up being a doctor and you're like, I really wanted to be a firefighter. And you wake, you're scared at the moment when you're deciding to become a doctor. There's also the fear of missing out, which is you're fine with what you've chosen to commit to. But that commitment comes with all these responsibilities that prevent you from being everything to everywhere to everyone. So you commit to going to this book club. You know, I like talking about really small commitments and really big commitments. You commit to going to the book club on Wednesday night. You're not regretting that you didn't join a different book club, but it's Wednesday night and you want to go to the party or you want to stay home and watch Netflix and you uh, are wor- you still have to go to the book club. The third fear is kind of a weirder one, but I, I've really sensed it in our generation a lot. Um, I'm a millennial, uh, which is the fear of association, um, which is the fear that making a commitment will implicate your identity or your reputation or your sense of control. And, you know, on this podcast, I can talk about being Catholic. You know, when you join up with an institution that's bigger than yourself, and I'll just talk about it on an institutional level, not a theological level you are implicated by that. It becomes part of your identity. 
And I think we are really averse to associating because we're scared of the messiness of it. You are honest about the upsides and downsides of of browsing. And I'm wondering what um, if you had a period in your life where you were kind of stuck in that mode and, you know, maybe what the upsides of that were and, and then what left you feeling lacking. Yeah. You know, I, this is the funny thing. If someone, some people have told me like, oh, this could be a good book for my 17 year old. And I don't want to stop people from buying this book for their 17 year old, but (laughs) kind of, um, but I will, I'll, I'll I'll speak against interest, which is, um, I would tell a 17 year old to go browse, you know? Um, and like, you don't want to, you know, you don't want your 12-year-old having chosen. I get kind of weirded out when I hear that a 12-year-old has already chosen their profession or vocation or something. And so, you know, in our early 20s, there's a total joy of browsing. And I, I actually have a, my first chapter after the introduction in the book is giving browsing its due because I don't want to be like a finger-wagging moralist about this. And the three things that I give it its due on are, one, is that browsing leads to flexibility. It makes everything a lot more chill. It says, you know, you're never going to be able to find who you're going to marry without dating a bunch of people, or you're never going to be able to find what your vocation is without, you know, trying things on, or even like your way of being in the world. You need flexibility. And flexibility helps you find authenticity, like people who were born into a community or a religion or a cause that, or a place that doesn't fit with their authentic self. I'm not saying stick with that. I celebrate in that chapter, you know, people who liberate themselves from that. And then the third, just to be less heady about it, is novelty. It's a lot of fun to browse a lot of things and see see the world and stuff. But the point I make in the rest of the book is that each of those are haunted by pain. So, you know, flexibility is haunted by choice paralysis the more you switch from thing to thing, the more harder it is to choose something. Um, Authenticity can be haunted sometimes by anime, you know, the old Emile Durkheim word for feeling kind of spiritually isolated, having nothing that guides you, not only losing the game, but having no scoreboard that tells you what the game is, not only being lost, but having no sense of what a map is at all that will guide you where you want to go. And then, the the downside of novelty is shallowness. You flitter from thing to thing and you never get the the deepest novelty of all, which is the novelty of being on the 10th year of a relationship or the novelty of seeing your 20th anniversary or the novelty of having really honed a craft. Those are the best novelties and you'll miss out on that if you keep browsing. I wonder if there's like a problem with even like segmenting our lives to like, okay, early twenties, this is when I'm going to browse. And then I'm going to, once I hit 30, that's when I'm going to find the partner. Cause then all of a sudden I've seen this happen with friends of mine, um, where it's like now every date they go on it, there's so much pressure on, all right, this has to be the thing or the one, because this is where I've decided I'm no longer browsing. And I put so much pressure on this, whether it's a, a romantic partner, but I think people feel this way with careers too, um, that the pressure of the thing can almost get in the way of this flexibility that you're talking about. Yeah, no, amen. And I also don't want to, you know, I've had people reach out to me after the speech that inspired the book who said, you know, 
I'm at a big transition at age 55 or something. And this mm-hmm. is, this is something for me. And I've had other people who say, you know, just got out, you know, they followed the world they were born into all the way to 35. And then they had their awakening moment where they wanted to be liberated from that then. And now like now is the time for them to have their browsing. So I don't want to be particular about it. I think that was just the most common you see. And, you know, I always, I have a whole chapter in here on overcoming the fear of regret, which is really just about making choices. Like, how do you make the choice of what to commit to? And the first thing I, I recommend in that chapter, and what do I know? But it's from talking to a lot of people who've made, you know, choices and like them. This is what they've all said. You need to lower the stakes. You cannot think of the first activity of doing the thing as the existential moment. A commitment is like something that grows organically inside of you. It is, it is an organic, natural, living thing that like grows in your soul. It's not something that's imported with a grand decision from the outside. I, I have this line in there that I, I found that I like, which is, a really committed person is solid like a tree trunk, not solid like a brick wall. It's like a tree planted by, a wa- by the water. It's not a stake driven into the ground. And what that meant to me in this theme was like, it's a commitment is you planted a seed, you tended to it. You were a little ironized to it at the beginning. Hey, I'm going to plant the seed. Maybe it'll grow. Maybe it won't. The whole push with this book is be willing, you know, be necessarily distant from it to like make it chill, but then be willing to lean into it a bit. Be willing to say, hey, maybe this will become a tree. Maybe this will become a flower. Let me water it. Let me return to it. Let's be a little more sticky to it. Let me not just plant it and abandon it. And so it's all about balance. It's not, I'm not trying to be dogmatic with the book. Yeah. Well, I feel personally called out by Zach by that last question. (laughs) That was not actually about you, but... Um, I, I will let you implicate yourself you know, if you'd like to. I, you know, I just hit the big three zero. The pressure is on. <laughs> the parents are asking, you know, oh, you have your vaccine now. Are you going to go on dates? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so I thought I do want to talk about relationships a bit and and how this uh, intersects with browsing versus um, commitment. And it's like, I don't know. I personally like I, I hate Tinder. Like I find it to be such a dehumanizing like way to you know, look through potential matches. Um, but it doesn't like it's become so dominant that it feels like if you opt out of that, like then you're not trying anything because people don't come up to you in bars anymore or, you know, friends don't set each other up. So like, what are, how do you opt out of like the like literal, like browsing of potential boyfriends (laughs) into something that could could still plant those seeds? I'll get to something that I think might help in the, world as it is on an individual mm-hmm. level. But first, you know, I think one of the stories of what Tinder is filling the gap of and the other swiping apps is there are not, and I have a whole section in the book on this, on attachment. You know, there are institutions of attachment that are very important in our like cultural ecosystem. Groups that get together that introduce you to things, elders that know a bunch of young people that say, I'm going to introduce you to this person, or I'm going to introduce you to this idea or this cause or something like that. Um, places where we kind of get to know people beyond their surface level qualities and thus give people a chance. And I think for those of you out there that want to be kind of cultural movers and shakers, build things, I would say one of the calls to action of this book is build more institutions of attachment. 
you know, groups that have a lot of people that meet up, you know, just basic civic community groups is one of those. On an individual level in the here and now, one of the things um, I think we need to do, and this is in dating and the most important cause of like finding your person, but also in all different types of things, is we, I talk about wanting to move from the kind of isolated and static sense of ourself and our preferences to an embedded and dynamic sense of ourself and our preferences. So isolated and static is you reflect on yourself and you go, I like the Los Angeles Lakers. I am an electrician. I, uh, I believe this politically. These are my interests. These are the, this is the person that will be perfect for me. And then when you go out to find something to attach to, you try to like line up the very rigid isolated block with another rigid isolated block. And what I've discovered from all these master committers is they switched their way of thinking about themselves. They said, you know, I still have values. I still have some things that definitely won't work. I still have form to myself. I'm not like totally liquid, but I'm going to open myself up beyond the kind of static surface categories to see if there's something else that sings to me in a cause, in an institution, and in the case of dating, in a person. Um, and it's funny, you know, I, I talk about the campus Mormons. I'm, I'm Catholic, but I was friends with the ca- campus Mormons in college. And they had a pool of like 20 people to pick from. And the rest of us, like more secular people, had a pool of like thousands of people to pick from. I, grew, I went to school in Boston and, um, and, you know, all the people around the city at all those colleges. And yet they seem to all find people. And the fact that the pool was so small allowed them to kind of let their guard down a bit to look beyond surface level qualities where the rest of us were like, if I have 10,000 choices, I better find the person that exactly fits. And that usually doesn't work in again. But again, who am I to give specific uh, dating advice? That's just kind of some general abstract thoughts on the process. (laughs) I wonder if we could switch a little to um, careers. I guess this applies... Um, I mean, it's so striking how this applies across so many different things, this infinite browsing mode and resistance to commitment. But I think another defining feature, um, and I think Ashley and I are outliers to this, but people like to hop around from from jobs to jobs. There's like a general tendency among young people. It's like, all right, put in a couple of years here, then move on to the next thing. Um, And I guess this is like a, a, a privileged thing too. But if you have any thoughts on staying committed to a, a specific workplace, especially when oftentimes the dynamics between worker and workplace are matters of, of justice or fairness or whatever. Yeah. And just to get the kind of politics of this and and the privilege side of this out of the way, um, it shouldn't be pushed out of the way, but to mention it first, I have a whole chapter on an economy based on money versus an economy that values particular things. And I talk about that this isn't just an individualized story. It is a like economic structure story as well. And when you have a unionized workplace or you have worker cooperatives, that is the kind of political project of creating an economy that allows for more commitments and vocations. But you know, we all have to balance that political fight with what we can do in the here and now. And in the here and now, my big message from all the people that I talked to, I interviewed 50 people for this book who were, I call long haul heroes, people that were committed to something for decades. And what I noticed with all of them was 
there are so many causes to work on. There are so many things to build. There are so many crafts that need masters that what really matters is not the initial choice of like what thing to choose. You know, you have to align with it somewhat. What really matters in the end, not just for what needs to be done societally, but also what will give you joy is the amount of depth that you go into the thing that you eventually choose. Well, another way to put it is if you just like rolled the dice and pick something and one 20 years down the line, it will be very useful to um, like develop an expertise in that and advance it and like learn the art of doing that part of what needs to be done in that job. Two is you will tell yourself a story about why it's a very important thing um, and you will psychologically adapt to what that thing is. And I'll give a few examples. Goofy one is I talked to this guy, Mickey Raphael, who was Willie Nelson's harmonica player. And he just one day chose, I'm going to be the harmonica guy. And I wanted to interview someone who had chosen a thing that appears to be so random and small and show what commitment does to such a thing. He decided in high school, I'm going to be the harmonica guy. I'm going to be an expert in harmonica. He saw one guy named Donnie Brooks play at the Rubaiyat Club in Dallas, the harmonica, and he like felt the spark of the divine there. And he's like, that's my thing. He developed the craft, became an expert on it. Who's the person who needs the harmonica the most in America? It's Willie Nelson's band. He finds him. He becomes the harmonica player for Willie Nelson's band. He plays for presidents. He travels all over the world, all because he committed to the harmonica. It might as well have been any other instrument, but because he chose to commit to that instead of flitting around, that magic happened. The magic was opened up. Then I talked to um, Lori Wallach, who runs kind of Global Trade Watch for this organization, Public Citizen, which fights to make sure there's justice in global trade deals. She cared about every single cause in the book, food justice. She cared about housing justice. She cared about democracy. But she saw that there was a need for someone to work on the wonky details. Like There needed to be a lawyer and a media maven that worked on the wonky details of fighting for justice and trade deals. And she decided to go into that in 1991, and she's been fighting for it for 24 years. And it ends up touching all these other issues, and it's opened up her whole world by committing to this very specific cause. I'm wondering if you have any insight into, um, I don't know, it's like referred to as the seven-year itch in a marriage, but I think people have this in in careers and other things where, you know, maybe you've You've decided to make this commitment you have to this person, to this place. Um, and then, I don't know, at any at any given long-term commitment, there's going to be a lull and where you start to question, was this the right thing for me? Do I want to see other things, other people? How do you take stock of where you're at? You, you, you've been in for probably longer than most people, but you still need to get further along. What are some like spiritual antidotes to that? One is to have a story of why and really make sure that you have a why that you tell yourself at the beginning and taking time to return to that why. So in organizations, it's a mission statement. In professions, it's an oath. And in marriage, it's a vow. And letting that why be a living thing that says maybe the why at the beginning was we're going to have a lot of fun with each other and support each other and getting stable in our life. And then the why becomes being good to your kids. And then the why becomes being good retirement partners and letting that why be a living thing. That's one. Another I found is simplification. Um, A lot of these long-haul heroes had simplified their life down 
to the essential commitments that they've made. And they try to, you know, not allow distractions or things that pull them away or things that sap their energy um, get in the way of their commitments. This is especially important with like cause work. There was this one person, you know, Evan uh, Wolfson, who was a lawyer who fought for marriage equality. He, um, he talked about how he tried not to be surprised or disappointed during the whole campaign. 32 year campaign. And so that was like an emotional roller coaster that would burn him out. There was another, this real estate community, you know, public interest real estate investor, Monty Anderson, who said, When I am down, I get grateful. When I am up, I get humble. And that keeps me on an even keel. Um, and I thought, oh, that's perfect. It's like a spiritual HVAC system. Um, <laughs> you know, when you're, when it gets too sad, like let's remember, let's count our blessings. When it gets too good, remember, thus passes the glory of the world. <laughs> now, Pete, I feel like this is a great roadmap for how to commit to something. Um, but uh, you, you do acknowledge this flip side where, you know, it's not always good to stay stuck in something that's toxic or, or, or really bad for you. And that people also have this tendency to, um, I don't know, stagnate in, in situations they really should get out of and, you know, browse more. Uh, how do you think about how to discern or understand you know, when a, a situation that you're in really is something that you need to get out and browse more or stay committed to? Yeah, I, I, this is a really, really important question. And I say throughout the book, I, in every which way, and I really believe this, like I sing the praises of quitting. You know, this book is not really aimed at people who are five years into something and they want to quit. Um, I, surprisingly, you'd think from the topic, it's aimed at people who are zero years into something and are avoiding getting to five years of anything. And so, you know, there are people whose whole lives opened up from, you know, I, I, from quitting something that was no longer authentic to them, that was no longer healthy to them. You know, I, I say some in the book, you know, the goal of this book with regard to sticking with something that you're already in is, you know, if a relation relationships are uh, commitments are relationships, relationships are like living things living things sometimes get sick and it's worth not saying, oh, this is a sickly living thing. Let's get rid of it. You know, it's worth tending to the sick thing and saying like, how can we make this better? How can we heal this? But if a living thing is dead, it's dead. And there is something morbid about play acting a relationship that is no longer there just out of the rigid rigidity of Pete told me to stick with my commitments. That is, that I, that is, the last thing I want to mention, and the the simple way I can say this is, this is a message for people that have often have trouble diving in, not people that get uncertain or you know or wake up every day hating themselves on the fifth year of being in a job or being in a relationship or something like that. That's above my pay grade, and that's not discerning. That is not um, something I can say aside from lean towards life and um, know that. There are other lively commitments and relationships waiting for you if the thing that you're in is truly dead and know that there are many chapters to relationships and some things that are sick or distant or wilted a bit can be watered to come back. There's this wonderful story of this guy, Max Pollock, who runs this. He was walking down the pier in his first week of law school in Philadelphia. He was walking down, I think, the boardwalk in Philadelphia somewhere, and he sees a bunch of guys fixing up an old house. And he turns to his girlfriend and says, 
I wish I wasn't in law school. I wish I was doing that. <laughs> and um, she said, then just quit. You're only in your first week. It doesn't matter. You know, <laughs> and, um, and he quit. He joined a design and build firm. He eventually honed the craft, started this amazing design and build firm and works to build the community and salvage old bricks and salvage old wood and, um, and called Brick and Board in Baltimore. And he's been at that for years now. And it's all because he quit something. <laughs> and so I really wanted to include that example in the book to say, maybe your commitment is waiting out around the corner because you, uh, uh, because you just need to quit something. But the lesson is, if Max then just browsed around instead of joining something else because he said, oh, I joined the law and it didn't work and now there's nothing I can do and now I need to find the perfect thing, it probably wouldn't have worked out as well. I'm wondering if these are fundamentally spiritual questions because there are certain, I don't know, assumptions baked into like what you think of as as the good life, um, what it means to be a good person and to um, live that out with the people around you um, that, that go into this. So I'm wondering... I don't know. So it makes sense, you know, to me from a Catholic perspective that, yeah, commitment makes sense. Yeah, marriage is for life. Um, so I'm wondering, do you see it as that? This is something I've really grappled with as, you know, I'm a fellow Catholic, so I'm constantly, you know, I have a whole section in the book on how I feel guilty all the time and I feel implicated and, you know, uh, I'm half Jewish, half Catholic. So I talk about how the sign that my family could have had is um, guilt invented by Jews, perfected by Catholics. And I saw on a bar once. Um, and, and that's why I'm very into these questions. And so I wrote this book as like a really moral book about, it's almost metamoral in that it's not about specific moral content of the different commitments. Like some commitments are totally against each other. There are people working on causes and people working on the opposite cause of stopping the other people that are working on those causes. Um, so I'm not kind of getting in the weeds of like the specific content of like different visions of the good life, but I am, there is some content, I believe like some moral content to the concept of attach of of structuring your life and aiming to structure society in a way that attaches more people to more places causes institutions other people communities um and ideas that supports the atomic structure of society not being isolated atomic king god individuals but encouraging us to all subsume into something greater than ourselves and um and that there is that's not like pablum nothing that is like a specific part of the vision of the good life that the most important thing is not preserving your isolated static individuality with nothing that you subsume yourself into and rather fighting to connect us and attach us. And the reason I bring this all up is I have trouble with this book because, you know, some people process this book as like this, like Tim Ferriss self-help book, you know, and some people have said, oh, this is just like another thing about like, seek your dreams, get your best life, rise and grind. But it kind of has this <laughs> ulterior motive and I'll admit it on the Catholic podcast. My ulterior motive of this book is to um, convince you that rising and grinding just for yourself um, is not worth it, and um, we need to build a society that has that is more a more dedicated people. I was really appreciative that you grounded sort of this problem in naming that it, a lot of these decisions that we we have anxiety over are really based on fear, because I think that that connected with me on almost this like Ignatian level where you know. It, when we're discerning what we want to do with our lives or what we want to what we want to do with a 
I don't know, any given task in her day that if if there's something based on fear that's drive primarily driving your motivation, that it's not that voice is not coming from God and that you are not you shouldn't really follow that. And I feel like a lot of our our generation is is so afraid because of, I don't know, a million things. But once you can name that, which you did perfectly at the beginning, you know, fear of missing out, fear of association, fear of regret, like it makes it a whole lot easier to do those things. And there are joys, there are gifts that immediately come when you let go of those fears. You know, I part of me was going to when I started interviewing these long haul heroes, I thought, oh, this is just a book about how you have to, you know, as my mom always tells me, buck up, you know, and and just deal with it, you know, deal with the fears, you know, deal with how it's boring or distracting or uncertain. Um, but what I found is that when you let go of those fears, when you let go of the fear of regret, you find this is gonna sound kind of abstract in the clouds, but I really believe this and I kind of talk at length about this in the book, you find the freedom of purpose. You find that you're a person of substance. Substance, you know. Um, I talked to Father Brian McDermott. Uh, I believe he's a Jesuit at uh, at Georgetown, and he talks about. I found my vocation. I felt like God had His talons in me, um, and then I felt safe because He had His talons in me. This wasn't my work anymore. It was God's work. If it was up to me, I would have quit this years ago. But God had His talons in me, and then when you give up the fear of association, when you give up saying, oh, I need to be perfect. I don't want to take on the reputation of being a Catholic or supporting this political candidate or joining this profession or saying I stand with this person or even saying I'm the husband of this person or the girlfriend of this person. Um, you get the comfort of friends. You get relationships. You get community. That only can come when you give up the fear of association. You're never going to have that. And then when you give up the fear of missing out, give up the fear of like, I'm going to miss all these novelties, you get the best novelty of all. The the deep novelty of what comes at the end of long hauls, finishing the marathon, baking the perfect croissant, having your kid turn five and say something cool to you. <laughs> um, that is... What's more novel than that? And it's not worth trading that for, uh, you know, going to the party on the specific time or cheating on that specific time or this, that, or the other. All easier said than done, of course. But I want to tell people this is a happy book and um, and a happy message because you know it's a uh, in in the spirit of our our faith. You know, it's a uh, it's joy is what comes from all of this. Amen. Well, that is a great place to. And this, uh, Pete, thank you so much for both the book and for for talking about it with us today. Um, it's really, really lovely. And we'll, it, the book, again, is dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. But before we let you go, we do have one final question for you. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Um, my favorite living Catholic right now. I don't know if she, she might've been said before, so this won't be that profound or interesting, but I just love her and I can't sing her praises enough is Sister Helen Prejean, um, the wonderful death penalty abolitionist out of Louisiana. I have one of her quote, uh, she's been fighting for decades um, to end the death penalty. And it is such a, I think she should be uh, canonized because well, there's an official way she will be, or you know, I'm, I, who am I to say why she should be? But um, on, on this show, you are, you are. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Give me that allowance. But um, uh, 
it is just such an example of Catholic commitment. It starts in mercy and turning towards the margins where people aren't going and bringing and seeing God there and bringing kind of love and mercy and yourself embodied to a place in the darkness. And then the reason I care about it with regard to this book is sticking with it for decades, person after person, mixing a interpersonal ministry with cause fighting um, everywhere, mixing creativity of writing novels and plays with, you know, the boring policy papers of why different things should happen. And she has this amazing quote that I just have to say that I heard her give in person. And I, um, I want to just end with my, my case for her with this quote. She said that she wakes up every morning and prays not for understanding, but to catch on fire. And she says it in her old Louisiana accent. It's like, pray not for understanding, but to catch on fire. <laughs> and I, that is a prayer that I, when I'm on my good days, I try to wake up every morning and say, today could be a day I could catch on fire. May that happen. Love um, it. So hopefully we'll get some <laughs> St. Helen Prejean yeah. after many more decades of her fighting on earth. Yeah, we had the honor of talking to her, uh, talking to her back in 2018. Um, oh, what a joy! And yeah, she she had this great uh, phrase, "Sneaky Jesus," also in her great accent, and <laughs> been using it ever since. I brought her to an um, event, and she all she did was just tell stories in circular ways. I tried to like get answers for different things, like what what are you doing about the cause? And then she's like, "Let me tell you the story," and I was like, "Oh, that's the best way to live." <laughs> Well, thank you, Pete, so much for coming on the show. Is there is there anything else you want to shout out where people can find your work or follow you? Uh, you can go to PeteDavis.org. I'm Pete D. Davis on Twitter, and the book is at DedicatedBook.org or Don'tKeepYourOptionsOpen.com. So <laughs> if you want to remember it that way. Um, I'm it. so, so grateful for y'all having me on and talking about this message. Hey, thanks so much, Pete. Thanks, Pete. And now we've got some housekeeping. What what do we got this week, Zach? So we just want to take a moment to uh, shout out and thank a couple new supporters on our Patreon channel. So thank you so much to Nellie Welter and Matt Curran, who joined in the last week. Uh, thank you to both of them, Nellie and Matt, and to all of our Patreon supporters. Again, you help make the show possible. And if you want to join them in supporting this show, you can sign up for patreon.com slash America Media and support the show. Or you can purchase a subscription to America at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I have a desolation this week, which is going to sound a little meta, um, but I think it's going to apply. Um, Ashley and I will joke sometimes that, you know, by the time our our conversations with, our weekly conversations with Father Eric roll around, it's like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm going to say or talk about. 
I don't think prayer life has actually been that fruitful. Um, and then usually like that's a lie and things get drawn out and we're able to share them on the show. But the past week for me, I don't know, has just been particularly like anytime I went to pray, there was just this great anxiety over like, oh, is this going to be good enough for is this going to be worthy of a consolation or a desolation? Um, which I get not everyone does, but I do think I, I've experienced this before. Like if there's like a face sharing group coming up or if I am about to meet a spiritual director, I'm always mm-hmm. like w- wondering if what I'm praying about is going to be serious or good enough to share with other people. Um, but the reality is like that just served as a huge amount of static. As soon as I would start praying, I'd be wondering and making it about the thing itself. Um, and Eric pointed out to me that like, Anytime you do this in a relationship where you, you like put too much pressure on um, like a conversation or a meeting or a date, it, it, may, it, it makes it too meta and it just like doesn't work at all. And it surprise doesn't really work with God either. Um, and so, uh, but you can recognize that and try to name it. And so this week I'm going to be trying to just chill out and and, and <laughs> let it flow and, you know, hopefully enter into a more honest and relational dialogue with god yeah it kind of resonates with part of our conversation with pete Mm -hmm. like some chill is good you gotta lower the (laughs) don't go into don't go into the first date expecting marriage yeah lower the stakes (laughs) what do you have this week uh i have a consolation uh so this past sunday we had a virtual baby shower for my sister-in-law dina who's due in the next month um it was my first virtual baby shower and it actually was quite wonderful her she has a twin sister who was very high energy and just pulled the whole thing off beautifully. But part of it was um, there's probably 25 women on the call, new mothers, grandmothers, people like me. Um, and part of it was just giving Dina um, a little bit of a piece of advice about um, becoming a new mother or just naming something about her or my brother, Chris, that we think will make them wonderful parents. I was just kind of listening to all of this and sitting there in awe of all the, all the wisdom that these um, women had to share. And it was just, I don't know. I was struck by the thought afterwards of like, you know, I've always like, you read the Bible, like women wisdom as personified as a woman. And I felt like in that experience, it was like made very like embodied uh, in these women who are in front of me. And yeah, I, it just, I don't, I don't know. I don't dwell a lot on like feminine imagery of the spirit or anything like that in my own prayer life. Um, so just like kind of being confronted with it in such a, in such a real way was, was really great. Um, Eric suggested I like go do some research into <laughs> wisdom literature and see if it, see if what I thought it said checked out. <laughs> And it did. It was, you know, there's wisdom, 8 verse 12. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and useful knowledge I have. Mine are counsel and advice. Mine is strength. I am understanding. And that's like, yeah, every single woman who spoke that day just like had practical advice that was grounded in love and experience. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> well, I know, I know your sister-in-law and some of the women who were on this call and I have this baby is going to be so blessed by so many women and she's got such a great family she's being so I'm I'm psyched for for this baby and for all of you guys thanks all right I will get us out of here Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 
and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.